Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm eager to have today's conversation with Cal Newport, who's a terrific writer, a professor, tenured professor at, at Georgetown, and has written six books. Six books, right. uh, two of Two of which um, really um, lit people up and really started a lot of conversation. Um, my son read... Uh, Digital Minimalism, the new one, and Deep Work. I've read both also. Uh, But my son was uh, quite insistent that you and I have this conversation, that I get into it and read everything, because he said your work has really uh, positively affected his life. So, um, Cal Newport, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, um, before we get into the the meat of what you write about, uh, I'm always fascinated by writers' journeys, and especially a writer whose big success has come outside of the core discipline that he yeah. uh, studied and, and was, um, you know, ha- has been em- employed for. And I'm, I'm wondering, and, and I'll be quiet and you can talk, but I would love if you would tell a bit of your story, like who you were before the two most recent books, what led to you writing them. And then I want to talk about what you'd hoped would happen to you and what it felt like when it did happen. So yeah, just talk about where you were the 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 sort of whatever the dissatisfactions were or what you were observing that led you Great. on the journey to to write these two books. Well, the relevant backstory is that that was those last two books were book five and six actually, right? So, I had been a writer uh, as long as I've been an adult, basically. So I signed my first deal with Random House right around the time I turned twenty one years old. So I had been uh, a writer, but originally I was writing about whatever topics were immediately relevant to my stage of life. So my first books, I was a student. I was writing essentially student advice guides. But I had this angle, this is my idea that actually ended up working, is I, I looked at student advice guides back in the, the early 2000s. Uh, and I felt like they were all written with a sort of condescending tone, right? It was all about how do we how do we have fun? We don't want to be too serious. The One of the best-selling guides at the time was called uh, The Naked Roommate. And I looked at this and I said, this is crazy. Like a lot of college students take themselves really serious. They're pretty serious. They're taking on big student loads. And I said, why don't we try to write college books like business guides? Uh, so the idea was, let's let's be no nonsense. Let's interview straight A students and say, like, this is how they actually study. Uh, so I got started writing student advice guides. And then at some point when I was leaving graduate school and I was going to enter the, the job market for the first time, I started getting interested in this question of how do people end up loving what they do for a living. And so I started write a book about this. And you were a computer science person, I was though, a computer right? scientist. I was at MIT. I was getting my PhD. You were uh, Dartmouth and then MIT. Dartmouth, I, MIT. In the sciences. In the sciences. So hardcore sciences, right? So I'm writing these books. I'm at MIT. I'm writing these books. No one knows I'm writing them, right? My, my doctoral advisor finds out I write books because it was on a display at the MIT bookstore. She's like, okay, this is interesting, but... Why did you want to write? I don't even... You know, and it's when, a good question. And when did it start? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I was a... I was a writer in college. I was the editor of the Huber magazine. I was a columnist for the newspaper. I mean, I, I though I was a hardcore computer scientist, that's what I was doing. I always was writing. I was always writing. So, so at some point in college, I had this idea about the student book, and I was I was actually here in New York. I think I was here. I, I spent the semester in New York. I was having drinks at the old the Russian Sam's Bar or something like this, right, with a friend, an entrepreneur friend. I was telling about this idea, and because he was an entrepreneur, he was like, "Well, just go write it." Right, they'll talk about it, do it. So I said, okay, I figured it out and, and wrote the first book. And then once I started writing, I just kept doing it. Were you a big reader as a kid? Big reader. Where'd you grow up? Uh, New Jersey, mainly. Yeah. Yeah, so I was a huge reader. Uh, 
Big consumer of nonfiction. Yeah, what kind of stuff did you read? Uh, huge nonfiction reader, huge genre fiction reader, like Grisham, Crichton, yeah, all the guys. And the nonfiction you read, was it self-help kind of nonfiction, or was it stuff that took apart the world? Uh, I mean, it was a lot of computer stuff. So, you know, biography of Bill Gates, story story of Apple. So that I, I had, when I was in high school, this was the first dot-com boom, the, the original one. And so I had a company, Princeton Web Solutions. So I'm, a, I'm like a 17-year-old. And I'm here reading all of the all the books you would read about, you know, business time management, self help, marketing organization. So I was deep in the business book world as well, which is why I started writing those student books because I was used to the hardcore business advice shelf. And then I get to college and I'm looking at the naked roommate. I'm like, well, this is crazy. It didn't apply. You it felt like apply. this isn't helpful to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. So literally, my, my first book is I found the business book I liked. I found the agent of that business book. It said, I want to rewrite this, but about college. And so I was always writing, but I was doing hardcore computer science. And so I got to that uh, so good that category is what the book was called. Uh, I got to that just because that's what was going on in my life. I was, I was going on the academic job market. And so this might have been the first and last job interview I ever did. And I was writing books. So I said, why don't I use that as an excuse to go out there and look at the research literature and interview people. And I felt out of the same place that I heard Mark Andreessen talking about not too long ago with you. Uh, I found this quote from Steve Martin, be so good they can't ignore you. I, I quickly discovered that follow your passion has a lot of problems as a piece of career advice. And so I wrote that book. Uh, so I put that Of course, as you know, I wildly disagree. You wildly disagreed, right? Though <laughs> though I, I think the way I would I would put it, by the way, is that passion is very good in, in terms of, A, how you approach things, and passion as a goal is very good. I think where Mark and I both agree uh, is the notion that most people have a strong pre-existing passion as a foundation for career choices is the flawed premise. Yes, most, most um, perhaps most don't, or perhaps most don't allow themselves to like listen to it um yeah this or is to hear it <laughs> yeah so this is where this is probably where the, the the me and mark and your cap uh maybe diverges a little bit i mean so so the way i see is for a lot of people passion develops and, and i think for a lot of people by the time you 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 hit your stride you're at full-blown passion and so when, when a lot of people say oh you should follow your passion really the advice that they're giving is you should follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work because life is too short you know I really think the disagreement and it's it, it's hardly a disagreement I actually think it's um uh, most people's laziness with language because passion when I, yeah. the way I use passion yeah. um, we could also use obsession we could use um, enthusiasm but we it's not um, a vague idea, and it's not something I like, yeah. and it's not that seems fun. Uh, so it's none of that. It's not, hey, I like baseball. It's all I can think about. If you're one of those people who has a who, who in my view, if you're one or why, where is this wrong wrong headed? Uh, you know, if you're one of those people who all you want to do is read and write and watch movies and quote them and study them not for some career angle not as a way to because you fucking love them yeah and it it um it lights a flame in you to do this thing for me um i can't understand how someone could have a fulfilled life without trying their very hardest to do it again that's where if you heard the injuries in interview i think rigor comes in yeah so it's taking that and adding whatever amount of rigor and focus you have to, 
in order to achieve it. Right. So where, where I would point out an issue would be nothing about that path is wrong. I think the issue is it's probably a lot more rare. That initial feeling of... I can't do anything but think about this. This lights a fire. To be like 21 years old and to have that feeling as you're facing the job market for the first time after college, that's a lot more rare than I think we give credit. I had it three different times before I figured out the right one. And I think that you get a lot by merely the practice of rigor. Well, trying to do it. Well, get it. See, but here's what might be happening. So one of the big ideas for the book is so I studied how do people end up, especially people who have missions, right? So they have an organizing idea for their career. And I really got into this and spent time with uh, this biologist who was sort of curing diseases in this interesting way and a few other people. And what was interesting about the missions is that for a lot of people, to identify the mission first required that they built some skills in the area. And you look a little bit closer, like what's going on here? Well, often the the best missions are in the adjacent possible of the particular field, which means when you get at the cutting edge, you suddenly can see these new reconfigurations of we take this and that, and there's open water, and this is a legitimate thing, and I really want to go after it. But until you get to the cutting edge, which requires some work, it could actually be really hard to... But I guess most of the letters that I get from people who are frustrated don't seem... And it's all anecdotal at this point. I don't think there have been enough studies done yeah. on this stuff, right? Yeah. But most of the letters are much closer to the Thoreau quote, you know, mass of all men lead lives of quiet desperation, which you use Thoreau yeah. in your book, sure. your new book. Most of the letters I get aren't, damn it, I chased my passion and now I've come up empty. Most of the letters are, you know, everyone told me I should stay in school. I stayed in school. Uh, I got decent grades. Now I'm the fourth lawyer down at this firm. Yeah. And I feel like my life has no spark. And so substitute lawyer for accountant, teacher, truck driver, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's, I sort of followed this conventional wisdom which said, yeah. your passion doesn't matter. What matters is... Um, uh, find a way to take care of you and yours. Right. Which the, is important also. Right. But that, but that conventional wisdom has become essentially a boogeyman. No one says that. Everyone says to follow your passion. This is, I mean, so. Uh, what do you mean? Okay. What so, do you mean that everyone uh, says that the guidance counselors don't say that's that? That's what they all say. And it, start, it started roughly, I went back and tracked the etymology with this, right? The phrase came in the widespread youth during essentially, used essentially during my childhood. It emerged in the 1990s as sort of a widespread idea, and then it's really taken off. And so when I'm out there talking to young people, it's almost all they're hearing uh, is, is follow your passion. You have this passion. You have to bat- – but all- Well, when you're talking to a privileged group of people, probably, right? Yeah. More than – Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. But so, – so, so coming back, though, to try to – Yes. Let's, let's lower yeah. the threshold. So, so essentially where I end up is I say if you set the threshold as – there's supposed to be one thing that's going to make itself clear, that's getting a lot of people stuck because they don't know what it is. So if you lower that threshold to don't obsess over finding the one right thing, look for something good. Look for something that's interesting, that, that sparks, you know, gets you excited, that's well-suited for you. And I always emphasize this, this gets, rid of the, uh, gets around the lawyer problem, something that will open up interesting options if you master it. Find that. And that's not necessarily easy. But find that and then focus on becoming so good you can't be ignored. Right. So it's still – it's not throwing a dart or just going, you know, what's going to pay the best, the most money. But what I like to tell people is that you're reducing it from there's one thing. And you're wired for that one thing. And if you miss the target, you're going to be miserable down to, okay, there could be many things. Maybe not a ton, but there might be many things oh, that could be the yeah. foundation. So don't lower this threshold. Find something good 
And then stop worried about the choice to take all that energy and invest it into it. Sure, get it after I agree it. with that. And that yeah. comes back for me to curiosity. Like, so the yeah. thing that I, the real thing I say is about curiosity. Yeah. Is st- whatever you can do to stoke your curiosity, to uh, become more curious, and to chase down more things that fascinate you, yes. the better chance you have at finding things that you love to do and that you're good at. This I completely agree with. Yeah, the sort and of expose yourself to bulk positive be, randomness. Yeah, be yeah. curious, yeah. be obsessive, not stalky, but obsessive. Yes. And through those things, um, you have a chance to find something that you're willing to work impossibly hard in order to achieve. This, I'm on board with you on this. And in fact, I, this is, okay, this is going to far, but the, the third book I wrote was a sort of crazy book uh, because I went through eight editors in one year because of consolidations over at Random House. So I could do whatever I right. wanted, right? And so basically the book was, what if we took a college admissions guide but ran it through some mix of E.O. Wilson and Malcolm Gladwell, right? So it's this crazy book, completely out of the radar. But what I did was I, uh, I found students who seemed genuinely relaxed and interesting people who had still come out of the college admissions process, not stressed out, not but had done well. I got to schools, like really good schools. I was like, okay, so who are these outliers? We ignore the outliers. They turned out to be just really interesting people. So the book takes this huge divergence into, well, how do people end up being really interesting? How do these kids end up? And it's exactly what you're talking about. So now I'm in this book talking to 16-year-olds. I mean, you have to that's fantastic. You have to free up a lot more time. You have to read a lot more. You have to expose yourself to a lot more. And so it became a, a, a deconstruction of how people end up doing interesting things. Right. How you become comfortable, which is the real battle, right? Yeah. All, all the stuff you write in a way yeah. Yeah. is about how do you become comfortable in your own skin and fulfilled yeah. uh, and not looking for a lot of outside um, approval. Yeah. It seems certainly the two books. Yeah. The yeah, two last sure. books, which are, I only read those two. I haven't yeah. read the first four <laughs> which books. Which is funny that we're talking I've about. I've heard all the you other... on podcast. I mean, yeah. I've heard you talk about the passion thing, and I've read a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. Um, and I will now I will now read it. But so keep going. So you wrote those books, and, and you got a teaching job yeah. in computer science. Yeah. And so where are you before you write deep work? What are you noticing in the world? What are you noticing in yourself? Right. That makes you. Because your career was very good, you were very young and successful. Yeah. But then you wrote two books that changed your life. So, so good they can't ignore you comes out right as I begin my professorship. And so, one of the the questions I kept getting from that book is, okay, if we buy this premise that you should get really good at things that opens up a lot of opportunities, how do you do it? And I was really interested in this in my own life. Again, everything's tracking my own life up to this point. And so, I'm thinking about tenure. So I say, well, I care about this too. Like, how do people become really good at things like what work what works and what doesn't and that's where i came across this idea well so in my field it was pretty clear i'm a theoretical computer scientist focus is the whole game focusing intensely that's how i was trained that's what matters that's what people are proud about you know people don't care about your social media or this or your your network all they care about is how long you stare at the whiteboard and so i knew that was the answer in my esoteric field as I was looking into, okay, what's relevant to other fields, I, I came across this surprising thesis, which is actually across knowledge work, concentration is being undervalued. And so there's actually this sort of mismatch that concentration is actually becoming more valuable than we realize in more and more different fields at the same time that we're accidentally making ourselves worse about it. So that book came out of there. And so it was about technology. It was about unintentional consequences of technology, but I didn't come at it from the point of view of caring about technology. But at some point after that book take, took off and I got tenure and I'm a computer scientist, that's when I started thinking, you know, where I'm actually sitting right now in the world of ideas is 
at the intersection of technology society. Were you before, as you wrote Deep Work, were you, um, in the moments before that, were you satisfied or dissatisfied with where you were in, in life? Uh, I was satisfied. I, mean, I, was, I, was, I was fighting for 10 years. I was publishing. You right. know, that's and what you I were was in it. I was so in you it. You were yeah. in it, and I was in it. And this book was about, hey, here, here's the ideas, right? Like these ideas are working. Uh, and did it? Here's did you it, expect the book to take off? Uh, not that much, not to that degree. Yeah. And and what? Because you'd written a bunch of books that were talked about and important. Like they did yeah, well and they gave you well. a career and yeah. all that stuff. And the book before this, um, or the one about passion, got you on. On media in Some a stuff, real yeah. way, and like people yeah. were picking up on it, yeah, and talking about it, yeah. Did your life change? Did you notice that because what digital minimalism is about? Um, I'm not gonna say it's a reaction to this, but it is about sort of what happens when the distractions become yeah. bigger. And I'm wondering if that started to happen to you. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. So, I mean, so deep work took off slowly. And it's, it, it was like the, the water that the frog is in. That you, you slowly start turning up the, the temperature and, uh, and you don't realize you're boiling, right? So that was definitely the experience with deep work. We did a lotch. It was sort of a modest lotch. And then it just started ticking, started ticking, started getting picked up, more people, more interviews. And, 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 and then it, it, there was never a week in which it was the number one New York Times bestseller. But there was never a week when it was low. And so, and so that kept going. Uh, the, the way that actually led the digital minimalism though, was that it threw me into this world of tech and unintentional consequences, right? I became someone who people thought about as someone who thinks and write about unintentional consequences of tech because deep work in part was about what happened when we threw in low friction communication to the workplace. We became bad at focusing. This has, this has unintentional consequences. And so it was really being thrown into that role, which meant I was being exposed more to the relevant issues in this sort of tech and society, tech and society intersection. I was being thrown into these issues. And that's really where the issues behind digital minimalism were brought. So it wasn't so much my problem. I'm weird. I, I don't have social media, right? Like I'm outside of that world. I'm the anthropologist who's sort of on the and island. And then you around. were outside of the world. I'd always been. You've always um been outside of social media i've always been yeah i've always been a theoretical computer scientist staring at the whiteboard uh, right but that doesn't there are theoretical computer scientists engineers um one of my best friends from college helped build the um america's cubed mainframe he's uh mit guy yeah. um and he's on facebook and instagram and he's built the huge companies in tech. So it's not that everyone in that world not is everyone, off right. of not everyone, social media. Right. But when you're in like the peer theory world where you're solving the theorems or whatever, everything matters. Every epsilon matters. And so if you have that poll, I mean, it's just like if you're at a very high level of athletics and there's certain health and fitness things that's not going to bother you and I that much, but that lost hour of sleep shows up in the third column of the batting average type of thing, right? Sure. So, so, that, that, so you made a determination though that part of that was staying away from that stuff at an yeah. early at an early yeah. age. Yeah, so I, I was away from it. So I was sort of on the outside. And so the issues I wrote about a digital minimalism were brought to me. Readers were coming to me. And they were saying, deep work is talking about business and our professional life and what's happening with email and distraction. But what about what's going on in our personal life? There was this growing unease. And it was something that really seemed to shift in maybe the last couple of years. And so I began to pick up on this drumbeat that the culture was shifting in terms of their relationship with their personal devices. Like, so what would the thesis of the book be? So I mean, so the thesis of this book is uh, we have become largely unhappy with our relationship with our personal devices. 
If you look closer, it has very little to do with utility. So people don't think what I'm doing when I'm looking at the screen is worthless. Right. They, they don't think they it's don't worthless, think that. Right? They don't think it. It's useful. I signed, uh, I signed up for this for a reason, right? I mean, so it's not a question of utility, right? Uh, what seems to be bothering people, especially the last couple of years, is issues of autonomy. So the idea that they're doing it more than they know is useful or more than they know is healthy to the exclusions of things that they care about more. It's this sense of I signed up for this for one reason, yep. and here I am five years later, and I'm getting this screen time report all of a sudden you know, for my, my iPhone. It's telling me I'm looking at this thing six hours a week or 15 hours a week. And that's not what I signed up for. And so it was really this diminishment of autonomy that seemed to be getting people upset. And it's as if everyone was starting to open their eyes and look around and say, whoa, 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 this world I'm in now is different than what I originally signed up for. So that's that's the foundation on which I sort of entered this topic. And did you enter, but it's fascinating to me that you entered it not being a native user of this stuff. Yeah. And you think that gives you, and you talk about this, but you think that that gives you a more pure perspective on it, or at least an interesting one. I mean, I, there, there's very few people who are able to write about some of this tech, especially social media, from an objective standpoint, because essentially for everyone, it's ubiquitous. Well, it's Wallace, the the Wallace fish story, but but um, you know, the fish doesn't know what what's yeah, what's water, the but. Speech, yeah. um, although I'm not sure, I th- I'm not sure that I agree that if you're in a thing, you can't. No, I don't agree with that either. Write about it. But you don't want you want at least some people who are not into thing to write about. You want both, right? So what you don't want is homogeneity there, right? You don't want okay, we all do this, uh, and we're writing about it, or everyone writing about this doesn't do it, right? You need a mix, and I think it was a little bit underrepresented on that side. Yes, but the thing, so you're a terrific writer, really compelling. Um, The books are compelling and thought provoking, and um, you know, you one can read them quickly. But the, I did notice a few things, though, um, about the – and you're a, very, a brilliant thinker. All that said, there were a few things yeah. that I noticed that struck me as just opposite from the way that I viewed them. And in particular, the, the, and, and, and I think it's um, – I think it has to do with the fact that you haven't made friendships online. Because a sort of a central premise, you repeat over and over. You kind of like write off. Well, if if these are your con, if this is the way you're in contact with these people, they're not really your friends. That that comes up a few different times about yep. people you loosely message with, direct message with, for yep. instance. But I think, and 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 the reason I want to pick at this granular part is because I think it reveals something about the way people um, who have different experiences of this thing called social media. Um, value it, and the ways in which it enriches or doesn't enrich their lives. Right. Well, I mean, so so one thing I'll say, so if, if you look at the digital minimalist philosophy, for example, it's not ascribing anything to be good or bad, right? So it's, it's not saying, okay, this is a bad tech, no one should use it, it's a good tech. It's certainly not saying everyone should be like me and be a weird theoretical computer scientist and, uh, and be cut off from this. But the, the whole notion of minimalism is to be intentional, right? Because where people have, have gotten into trouble is this notion that I've been signing up and downloading haphazardly. And now I'm looking up and the, the rules of the games have changed and I'm, I'm using this more than I want to. I'm using things that I don't need to be using. So it's a minimalism is about stepping back. So like get back in touch with what matters, what's working, what's not. How do I really want to use this is taking back control. So for example, I read this experiment in the book where I had 1,600 people go through this transformation. So let's let's take a month, let's step away from all of the optional technology, let's do some reflection, figure out what's important, and go back and rebuild your, your life from scratch. About half of them 
kept social media. And for all sorts of different readings, including like what you're talking about, for some people, uh, connections, visual artists told me about uh, seed artwork on Instagram is crucial well, it's for the process. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. There's, there's, there's all sorts of different reasons why they stuck around. Facebook groups, there's a lot of organizing that happens on Facebook groups. So about 50% of the people who went through it said, I'm getting rid of social media. 50% kept it. But of the 50% who kept it, they significantly changed their relationship with how they used it. And so one of the more notable things you notice is that almost all of them took it off their phone. And that's more classic minimalism, right? So uh, it's not that these tools are worthless or, or maybe they aren't or this one's bad and this one's good. It's about are you being intentional? So this is these are the ones I'm using. This is why I'm using it. And sure. This is how I'm using it. There's huge wins to be gained once you add that intentionality. But uh, but it but it also seems to me that so that's 1,600 people. But that also seems to me that the 300 million people on on Twitter, in yeah. your mind, are zombies without intention and engaging in thin fake relationships. And I and for me, yeah. I, it's not my observation or experience on Twitter. Well, again, I would say two things to that. So I, I think what you're picking up on with the, the thin fake relationships is, is actually the point that for your, your human drive for sociality to be fulfilled, it needs analog. So if you're partaking in a lot of what the psychologists call social stacking, where you're replacing almost all analog communication oh, with digital, sure, uh, you could end up paradoxically feeling more lonely because the sort of primal brain doesn't recognize text as actual interaction, right? So well, it's, it's, it didn't. It doesn't. But we evolve. Uh, it takes a while. Yes, of course it takes it, a while. We're about nine years into no, ubiquitous. No. <laughs> of course it takes yeah. it takes a while, though there are always outliers. And we're much more malleable than – we are much more malleable, yep. I think. Like, for instance, I was thinking a lot today um, about the horse and buggy and the cars, right? Be, because I could have been a car minimalist. And I could have said, um, you know, that there are all these costs of having a car. You're not going to see the scenery. You know, we need nature. And we need to see the nature. Um, you're gonna, you're, you're risking in it. You know, if you have a slight inattention, you could crash. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, it is this. This argument is also um, the cars are taking over. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And we better instead learn how to use this stuff. The car, how to drive well. Well, but so for the, it's a, it's a good analogy. But for the car analogy, everyone essentially was horse and buggy minimalist because what cars had was a high cost of entry. So there actually had to be a really compelling reason before someone was going to buy a car because it was going to cost them. But not 12 years later. Well, 12 or 14 years later, everybody had a car. I mean, 20 years later, right, for it's, sure. It's, right, but, but because... And, it, and, 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 you know, it would take you away from your family. I mean, that was people were really worried that, that cars... Well, the obvious current about that, yeah. Well, yeah, and people were really worried it. that cars were going to take you into another... You, know, you talk about... I mean, I want to talk to you about Rumspringa because, again, my conclusion about Rumspringa is different. Yeah. So... The, the, well, I have mixed feelings about Rumspringa yeah, too because there's some. But yeah. yes, but 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 the um, well, yeah, the the sort of male idea of there there are aspects of Rumspringa that are very problematic. But um, the the fear that cars would take you and and now the family unit would be disrupted because you could go far away. Yeah, but, there's an it is analogous. Oh, it, it, but here's the difference: is so social media is free. Or at least it, there's very low friction to use where the car was expensive. So the fact that cars became widespread meant that it made a very compelling value proposition. 
oh, I could actually do whatever. I could live out here. I don't have to live right in the city. I could go. I, I have flexibility what jobs I take. I could take my family on vacation, whatever it is. There is a, a very strong argument for the car because it costs money. So if something is expensive, people's natural relationship towards it is minimalist, which is I'm going to be intentional here. You're really going to have to convince me there's value before I give you three months salary to buy a car, right? So, you know, early on, that's why I say everyone was a sort of horse and buggy minimalist because they weren't just going to casually pick up the car. They say, okay, I'm, I'm going to wait till I'm really convinced because it's going to cost me some money. So we lose some of those dynamics when you, when you enter into what seems to be at least a free or low friction service. So if Twitter cost $20 a month, I don't know what the what the user numbers would be. It wouldn't be zero users because there's a lot of people who get a lot of value out of it. But it might not be 300 million because cost is a way of actually forcing people into a minimalist mindset. I'm because people aren't thinking of time as a cost. You are, about, but people, people aren't, aren't thinking about time yeah. as a cost. They're used to thinking about money as a cost, right? And so that's the experiment. So so if, if Twitter was not trivial, how many people would use it? There still would be a lot of people to use it, but it would force people into a minimalist engagement with it. So a lot of what I'm talking about is even when a service is free, you have to essentially capture those externalities. You have to think about it like there's a cost, just like you would think about before you bought a new piece of electronics. Like, is this going to be valuable for me? Sure. Um, And you, do you not think that, uh, that the reach of social media adds the same kind of value potentially that the automobile did? In other words, if I have a question about some piece of knowledge or a medical question or um, really I, I, or um, I'm listening to a record and I want to talk about Al Green and um, the, the, nobody's in my house, you know, my aunt, my friends that I could um, talk to more easily are unavailable. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can go to music Twitter and ask four people that I've cultivated, four people that I've very intentionally so I'll say a lot of people have said to me, many, like not to sound like our um, awful president, have said, you know, many people have said, but like I use Twitter with a lot of intention, meaning yep. I'm really careful about who I follow and why I follow them. Yeah. And so I know the four people that I would go to right now to have a really great conversation yep. about Al Green. Yep. I don't know how else to replicate that. Well, okay. So I'm going to... I'm going to pivot here slightly into another aspect of my argument because I think this is relevant. So I, I sort of have God, these different it. angles, right? So this, this is this, fun. You're so smart. It's great. To talk no, no, to I love guys. this stuff, right? This is what I do. I argue about this stuff for a living. Uh, so there's a distinction, which I think is really important, that's been lost between the social internet and social media, right? So I'm a big internet nerd. I was a very early internet person. I was I was dialing in the, the, the I bulletin was on Prodigy, boards. CompuServe, I was on, and I was on all of them. I was on all that. I was using Gopher and Telnet. I've been a native coding. user the whole time. Yeah, me too. And, and so I'm a huge internet nerd. Uh, you know, I, lo- I love the internet. The social internet in particular, which is what really emerged after the first dot-com crash, which is an internet that focuses on you can express yourself, you can connect to people, you can find interesting information. Gutenberg-scale innovation as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Like what yes. you're talking about, right? The ability to talk to Al Green fans. Not Steve Gutenberg, the press. He's talking about the press. <laughs> yeah. the printing press. The printing press, yeah. yeah. Just so short people circuit. understand. Oh, not is, short circuit. This is at the this scale like, of three minutes yeah, a baby exactly significance right. to our culture. No, he's culture. talking about the printing press. <laughs> the printing but, press, yeah. Yes. No, so I think this is, this is a huge innovation, which is why a lot of people who are big technophile early internet people are really upset about what's happening with the social media companies, which is basically companies coming along and saying, we are going to try to take this weird and wonderful decentralized homegrown thing, which is the social internet, and we're going to put it in the walled gardens. 
we're going to create our own versions of the internet. Uh, they're going to be walled guarded. So you have to come into all our Well, they made it easier. Like, the bulletin boards were really hard to use. Yeah, so then we're going to make and, it easier. And by the way, the bulletin but, but boards weren't had... instant. But the bulletin boards weren't instant. Yeah. So what I'm saying is I could go on Twitter and at mention four people yeah. and then spend 20 minutes talking about Al Green in a way that is very satisfying to me. And then um, if I'm in a city or town where one of those people are, I'll meet that person. We'll have coffee together, yeah. and then we'll be real life friends. Yeah, but so this is the central tension. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use the surface, but the central tension is like the, so. The internet was going to the social direction. Mark Andreessen comes around. They figure out how to make a browser that makes sense. Everything's decentralized. Anyone can participate. And then you have these companies come along and say, "We're going to build private versions of the internet, and you're welcome to come use it." One catch. Sort of like Foucault's Panopticon. We're going to watch every single thing you do, and we're going to re-engineer our services to be as addictive as possible. And this is sort of a whole separate point, but this whole behavior of looking at our phones all the time is not at all fundamental, but it's pretty much an engineered behavior that was put but out no there. No different from... than the hedonic experience that food companies try to engineer. It's exactly. The perfect combination of food, salt, and fat. Which caused a lot of but trouble. But that doesn't mean don't eat. <laughs> it doesn't mean don't eat, but it also means don't eat, don't eat junk food, right? And so you come back and say, I love food. It's still not justification for if you eat McDonald's all the time. It's very simple. Right, but I guess that okay, good. I'm glad yeah. you said that. So the central thing that I come away with that I that that strikes me as an overreach is that Twitter has to be McDonald's. That's my argument well, with yeah. you is that tw- uh, to me it's, it's uh, Twitter isn't well. McDonald's. Twitter can be Mc- is, is Twitter can be McDonald's. But and the, and the, and the, the question about um, so you take this stuff away then you come back with very clear intention. But but for me and this is why I wanted to talk about that curiosity and fascination thing is I like the randomized, unspecific dream time on the social media to find the next thing that um, right. so this, this is really a, interesting. Which, which was a big part of the social internet. So, I mean, so the basic titchet is that here's why it's a titchet. On one side, you have the this kind of stinks that this wonderful decentralized thing is being turned into these walled gardens where you're being completely taken advantage of and it's very addictive and it's taking you away from other things. What makes it attention is on the other side, they've gathered everything inside these walled gardens and the crops are going fallow outside. So it's actually not that easy yeah. to... So, so yeah, you, yeah, I mean, we could have... Our structure... We, we, we probably don't actually disagree very much about the structural inequality of the setup. Yeah. Let's say that... Let's yeah. stipulate that we agree. Yeah, so... But, but, this, that, but for the user... Yeah, so this brings you back to minimalism, which is, okay... For a lot of people, there's something they need in that walled garden, right? They, maybe in a perfect world, in sort of like a Gerard Lanier, Douglas Rushkoff dream, we wouldn't have that anymore. We'd be back to like, we all would own our own servers and have blogs and be wild and, and decentralized, the type of thing I love. But that's maybe not going to happen soon. So we have to go to the walled gardens because that's where the Al Green fans are, right? And so that's what we get in minimalism is you figure out what is it that I wanted those walled gardens and you go in with some care. Right, so you say this is how I use it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be captured. I don't want to be. I don't want to have my psychological vulnerabilities exploited. And so, with minimalists, you have them be choosy about what services they use, and then they have these self-imposed rules about how and when. And doing something as simple as having some attention about what they choose and rules about how and when takes this cost-benefit ratio. That right now, the the cost is really too high, and it completely changes it into their advantage. Well, are you seeing people? So, my Sammy, my son said something really. Smart, as we were talking about this, because um, anyone who listens to this knows he's a bright person and uh, really intentional. And, and um, but he read your book. He read both, but he read the second book. And as I said, it, it, but it, it had a huge impact on him, as he told you. And he took all the apps off his phone, and he felt like he captured a lot of time and energy to do other stuff that was really important to him and, and super helpful. But he and he's and he and he and we're talking about it, and 
my view was slightly different. He said, yeah, but dad, you grew up in a time where you were reading a lot of books, a lot of fiction. You, and this is true. So I meditate for 40 minutes every day. I journal for a half hour every day. During those times, there's no social media at all. And I take long walks. I listen to music when I take long walks. But so no matter what, I have this block of time that's the de- that's its own quiet away from stuff time that I'm planning, thinking, allowing myself to yep. to dream. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm writing, but weirdly when I write, I do I reward myself the way people reward themselves to walk around the block. I reward myself with Twitter a lot of the time. Like if I write a scene, I can then go fuck around on Twitter for yeah, yeah if you get this ten, yeah. ten minutes. Um, but he was saying, look, you know the the stuff was baked into your generation. I'm 52, my generation, that is not baked in now. And so you think that's why part of what the disconnect... Uh, for me, I see the attention drain. I understand it. But for me, it's mostly an additive thing because it's not stripping me yeah. of those practices. Well, you're you're a naturally minimalist in the way you're approaching this technology because yeah, you're, you are right. You've been around. You, you have already established in your life the things that you find to be valuable, what's important. So you look at this and say, well, what can I get out of this, right? But you're absolutely right to pick up on the age divide because I definitely picked that up in my research. But if you're 23 and you do the experiment of my book where you take a month away from this stuff, it's terrifying, right? You look at that first day, you're like, what am I supposed to do? I talk to someone who's my age or older, somebody who at least had some of their adult experience pre-internet, if they do those 30 days, it's just rediscovery. It's like, oh, you know what? I wasn't spending, I, I used to really love doing this. I hadn't been spending enough time doing this. It's, it's great. I'm going back to some of the things that, that I really like. And so it probably does seem familiar to you because also, I mean, you're uh, like a highly creative, you know, highly achieving, you know, probably this is a, it's self-selective. That's probably why in part that, that, uh, that you're very uh, successful as it is or whatever. And so you're applying social media in a very minimalist way. Essentially, Even I'm, trying to... I'm on it for hours though. Like I, that's the confusion for me, yeah. right? But, but you're still writing. You're still, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, it doesn't affect my ability to yeah. do my work. Yeah. And, and to spend a lot of time thinking and doing my work. I guess I think you can incorporate it all. And I guess I'm, I'm, but I, how do you replicate this experience? And, and I, I just want to. Uh, uh, so, like, how do you replicate without social media? Because now, the way we're talking now, it's it's very um, mellow. You're. I, I think the listener might not understand that tonally, the voice of your book is. It's not creating this as a dystopia, but it is sort of a draconian. Uh, um, the general advice in the book is fairly draconian. Well, there's there's definitely a dystopian toe to the how we got here now. Yes, story. and then there's yeah. also like this this um, this idea comes across and uh, that that essentially the author thinks we'd probably be better off if we were just way less engaged with this stuff, way 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 less, and that it's generally. Not value neutral, that it's value negative. At least, Which, at least the way a lot of people are using it. The way it. most yeah. people are yeah. using it, it's value negative. So, but and I don't want to give quick, I don't want to just quickly go past the idea of people making connections. Yeah. Because if people are alienated and lonely, I understand that if they're only living in that world, I get it, I get your point, I know the studies, yep. and I, I know you're not making that up, right? On the other hand, I've been on these, I've been on Twitter. I've noticed someone saying some clever stuff. 
We've engaged. That person's connected me with somebody I've admired for years. We've all ended up having dinner together. My real life sphere has now um, grown tremendously. And through those people, I meet, I meet more fascinating people and learn about f cooking, um, jazz music, movies. Like my real world is completely expanded in the way this stuff is designed. And I don't think that is an atypical, I, I, I wanna ask you, is that truly atypical? I think it's a little less typical than you might think, right? I mean, see, what you're talking about is a, a sort of much more intentional sort of exposure to serendipity, creative-fueled engagement with social media, which what people have instead, this is the issue I'm, I'm hearing me. a lot I of. Tell me, I want to right, understand it. Uh, is, this is an escape from essentially all of life. Like I, This is an escape any moment of boredom, anytime there's something difficult I have to deal with, anytime I'm tired – it's easier just to look at the screen because it's it's algorithmically optimized to show me something that in the moment is going to make me feel good. And so where it becomes a problem is when it gets extreme. So it subverts, uh, subverts the boredom drive, right? We have this very strong boredom drive. Why do we have it? Because humans are satisfied when they actually expend energy to do things that are useful to see their intentions being manifest in the world. You could subvert the boredom drive by just looking at this. Boredom is supposed to drive us to write something. Sure, dissatisfaction is supposed to, drive, to move us. But you could subvert it. Same thing. We have a social drive. You could subvert the social drive by just going through Instagram. But the reason we have such a strong social drive is that we also need to actually sacrifice time and attention on behalf of friends, close family, uh, family, close friends, and community. We actually have to get out there and actually sacrifice time and attention. I'm coming to your house. I'm sacrificing my time to do something useful. And so where people are getting the trouble is not because what you're doing is is essentially what people used to do what the technophiles used to do on the internet, you're using the new tools very well. They would go on there, they would explore, they would have serendipity, they'd meet interesting people, they'd go onto these bulletin boards and then they would sign off and go back to you know right. whatever they're doing, yeah. like creating something awesome, like virtual reality, like Jared Lanier. It's really different than the problem a lot of people are having, which is this is an escape from almost everything and it's subverting sort of fundamental human drives. And so now I'm unmoored and anxious. Right. You're not... making the sort of Grand Theft Auto argument that people yeah. made about video games or the Footloose argument about rock and roll and dancing. Yeah. I mean, that's the, for me, right? You're making the argument like that people have always made about the thing that teenagers like. Like, don't you think we've always, like, I guess, don't you think we've always as a society, some people have used stuff intentionally and some people just, you know, dance to rock and roll music, and the the, the academics stood on the side and were like, uh, this is destroying our culture. Well, so I hear this a lot, so I looked into it, right? And so when we look back in retrospect, we uh, exaggerate the degree to which we now remember society being really worried about a lot of these Not things. Not about rock and roll. They were so worried about rock well, and roll. Well, but who was worried about rock and roll? Well, we're talking about- The parents. The parents, yeah, right. But I went back and actually checked with technology in particular, right? Right. And so TV was comparable. In yeah. terms of like the level oh, of, yeah, of upside. Sure. I was, was a kid in the 70s, so. TV was comparable. A lot of the things are exaggerated, though, I hear about. So I hear about the telegraph was the same way. Not really true. Everyone quotes the same Thoreau quote, but it wasn't really widespread. People, there's, there's a period where everyone was quoting the same uh, Phaedrius dialogue of Plato as, as evidence that even, even Plato was worried about the written word, right? But you go back and you read the Phaedrius. It's actually not anti written word, it's, it's pro dialectic for philosophical Right, but, but rock and roll really but, is when I've read the books. We, I mean, rock and roll. Rock and roll, was but one. that's. But Cultural is a little bit different. Focusing just on technological. So tel television was very similar. Uh, a lot of the other tech scares were not quite... Video people, games? Uh, 
Which I'm sure you actually, actually could write video, this book about video well, games. Well, video games has become a worse problem than it was. Yeah. Well, and, and to yeah. me, especially for video games men. doesn't yeah. have, um, well, now it does have people on the other side of it. But I can see your argument because a video game, that, talk about a closed loop and um, a certain amount, a, a kind of an experience that just is the same. Yeah. To me, that's different than, than well, at video media. games got, well, there's a whole separate issue, but they began doing engineered addictiveness with the video games and sure. that it's causing actual addiction. But I think we actually, I think there is a scale and scope with what's going on with personal device use that is worthy without hyperbole of the concern we have, because now we're talking about almost ubiquity. We're talking about two plus hours per day of people's time. And so we had the same concern about television, but we were, we were, we were right in the sense that television drastically changed the social fabric. People started watching five or six hours of television a day. It really did drastically change the, the way people interacted. And so I think what's happening with ubiquitous attention media delivered through phones is maybe comparable to television and that it's having a significant impact on the social fabric. And anything that's going to have a significant impact is worthy of, of unpacking. It's worthy of unpacking and yeah. studying. What do you think the allure is? So I like that podcast, The Minimalists, you know, and, yeah, I know those guys, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, what do you think the allure of the minimalists, of Marie Kondo, and of what you're talking about is in our culture? Because you're, there are a lot of scientific underpinnings. You've done a lot of work on it. There is also, though, it feels to me, a romance to uh, this idea of I'm going to cast it all off and become remember the best version of me. So do, do you see a connection between the, the minimalists other than that you wear the same black shirt those guys do? Yeah. Um, b- between them, you, and, and Marie Kondo, and our, our sort of the way we're, we're um, being drawn to it? So minimalism is ancient. You could you go all the way back to the Stoics, right? You sure, see, I'm you a see, big Stoic, right? So Marcus right. Aurelius yeah. wrote about this, right? Thoreau sure. wrote about this. We have the voluntary simplicity movement. Now we have Mary Kondo. We have Ryan and Joshua, and so the basic idea behind minimalism is somewhat timeless, which is this notion which seems to resonate with people because it tends to work. And there's a mathematical reason for this. They don't talk about it, I do. Uh, there's a mathematical reason why that's true. But all things being equal, taking your limited time and energy and focusing it on things that you know for sure are highly valuable, gets you higher overall returns than taking some of that energy and spreading it out in, in search of other smaller things. So if it's your stuff in your house, you don't want to clutter your house with all sorts of junk. That's what Mary Kondo would say. Even though these little things, this pair of socks in your closet, you might have some value from it. You're better off focusing on the things that you really care about. And so Thoreau said the same thing about your work life, right? If you're just pursuing, well, I want to get the copper pot, and I want to get the Venetian blinds, I want to get this, you don't take into account the, the time and energy it requires. It's a, and so digital minimalism is just taking that same idea. No, and look, um, the thing that I really agree with, I, Facebook, I took off my phone. Yeah. And that was a fantastic, fantastic positive development for yep. me. Um, and Instagram is a fun distraction. And I, I, I see the connection to people's stories you watch slightly differently than you do. And part of that might be me as a the things that I'm interested in as a writer. So it might hit me in a different way. You're a writer too, but the, the things I write about and yep. looking at the way people use that helps me. But even thinking about the intention has made me realize just how I really do value the community that I'm in on Twitter. It means something to me. Yep. And so reading your book made me think about why, which was a useful, I mean, that's, yeah. it's really useful for that reason too, yeah. which is to, to understand, well, what is it? What is my emotional reaction? And then, and then I really started writing down the, 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 the people, and this is what it really comes down to, for me, the people that I've developed real life relationships with, yeah. or that I know now, because um, you can email, like a, one of my best friends, he just died, 
We knew each other for 15 years, then he moved far away. Most of our communication the last 15 years has been email, and it was the same because we were, yeah. we were, we talked a lot on the phone. Yeah. And that was like almost the same as being in a room with him. But I realized like, okay, well, there's these relationships. And, and for whatever reason, the way that I'm able to use Twitter, I can get that. Yeah. But so, so you going through that exercise, it's a, I'm going to add on some hypotheticals, right? but like a, a typical minimalist exercise would be maybe you discover there's certain relationships I discover using Twitter in this way. And they merge in the real world relationships. This is very positive for the type of work I do, the type of people I meet. But maybe when you're doing this exercise, you recognize I'm also spending an hour a day, whatever, yelling at politicians or something, right? And yeah. this is just, or yelling at supporters on the side. This is making me more upset that it's useful or this or that. And now you can start to pull those things apart. Sure. And say, so what I really want to do is go on, follow these people, stop following these people. I want to use it. Okay, maybe I don't want it on my phone because it's starting to become too much of, a, of, of an escapist crutch. But I have it on the iPad because I use it when I'm writing. Now you're going. Now you're going through and being intentional, and so now you're pulling out the value and you're stepping away. Now the thing is, you're already pretty streamlined, right? So yes. you're you're used because you're used to like you use this stuff. It sounds like you're using it high return, right? A lot of people are not nearly. Well, that's that why it was easy to get rid of yeah. Facebook because I realized, like, well, Facebook gives me nothing. Yeah, but that's hard. I mean, for not a lot nothing, of but mostly nothing. Yeah, enough that it, that I can check Facebook about once every two days. Yeah, for and it doesn't suck me in for whatever reason. It's not. I can check Facebook for 10 minutes every two days, yeah. and I get everything I need out of it. I see if yeah. then that's it. And that's Facebook's problem, is that that's true for almost everyone. But they need you to do – they need you to look at it constantly for their well, revenue Well, they want numbers. you to be yeah. on the Messenger, and I took – I won't have yeah. Messenger on my phone yeah. either. I'm not interested in getting more notifications. Yeah. I, I also agree with you. As few yeah, notifications – this is great, though. This is, this, is, this is a classic minimalist. So, what I mean, what's coming natural to you, this is a great example for a lot of people maybe, maybe who are listening because what seems natural, like, ah, my value is not there with Facebook. It's out of there. Right. That's a big deal for a lot of people because for a lot of people, it's I could think of something that I get valuable out of Facebook. I worry I might miss out on it if I don't use it, yeah. and then they're using it now. Well, yes, yeah. I have zero FOMO. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about um, some of the examples you use. I think you talk about the Amish and the Mennonites, or who's the other group that you talk about? Uh, I mean, it's all on the spectrum. I, I, yes. mean, I, I mentioned a, a, a Mennonite. Yeah. 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 Um, the Amish are complicated. Yes. Um, because as examples... I'm just not sure that's the strongest part of the argument. The Luddite groups are well, the strongest part of the argument. Well, the Amish aren't Luddite, the though. That the, but the idea yeah. that, the, the, that, that, that people go off on these things and then return, I, I had a little trouble with that as, um, as a convincing argument because they've been trained their whole lives to return. Well, that, that's, the, that's the key criticism. Crit- I mean, well, that's my just, problem with that. Is, well, is it, it, it's also that it's not just that they've been trained. It's the social pressure. Right. The, 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 yeah, you, the, you, you the, don't have to come back, but you can't talk to your family. Yeah, you're out of yeah. – you're. it's like the Orthodox. I mean, in my – you know, in, in the Jewish religion, right? Yeah. So if you're – or the, the Hasidim really more than the Orthodox. Yeah. But, but but if we put that aside, like the, – so the, the right lesson to pull out of the Abish is mainly what's, what's the principle at the core of the Abish society, which is intentionality over convenience. And so there's a lot of issues with the, the Amish society. I talk about some of them in the book, and, and uh, it turns out like British people, I mean, a lot of British press, hate the Amish. It's interesting. I didn't and know that. It's interesting. I get it. But, but well, the main lesson to take away from the Amish is not live like the Amish. There's a lot of problems with the way they structure their society, the way that they, they actually they run their towns. What's important is that they, they uh, exemplify a principle, which I think is fundamental which is that the value people get from intentionality, living intentionally, could be very powerful. And it's often much more valued than convenience. Do you find people, because I, when people ask me, uh, people very often ask me parenting advice, um, and um, I'm loath to give parenting advice. Nobody should give parenting advice. What I 
um, there are only a couple things I know to be true. And one is parent with intention. Just actually think about it. Yeah. Don't react. Actually so think about how you want to parent. Think yeah. about what you want to get out of your interactions with your kids. And if you just start there, that already separates you from 99% of the people yes. being parents. Which is true at actually, almost everything. Yeah. Ha- What's that? That's true at almost every endeavor. Actually just <laughs> intentional. have yeah. in- parent with intention. If you do, you're going to come to the right conclusion m- enough of the time yeah. to make a positive difference. So have you found that through reading this book and uh, – people start to apply this intentionality across the board. Well, and yeah. is that something you hope happens? I, well, yeah, because it's it's all just tapping into the same vein of minimalism, which is this ancient idea, like be intentional. You know, figure out what's important. Go after that aggressively. Be very wary about dissipating energy from what's important to, to lesser distractions. It applies almost everywhere, which is why the idea has been around for whatever it's been now, 2,000 years or more. How, uh, how has your life changed since you uh, wrote these two books? Like... Um, and how has it been hard for you to manage? Now, I know you took yourself, you're not on any social media, as you've said. You're, on your website, people can't email you, right? So yeah. ha, has your life changed? Has the success, um, I have a couple questions about this. Has the success made you uh, more eager to dive into the next book? Has has the sort of success and then some backlash made you gun shy at all? Like where how, where do you find yourself as a, as a writer, as an, an artist in that way? Yeah, well, one of the advantages of not being on social media is you don't hear most of the backlash, <laughs> which which is actually not true. I mean, I've had some pretty serious backlash. I've had, once I wrote something for the New York Times that they deemed controversial enough that they actually commissioned a response op-ed just to give the opposite point of view because they decided... What from, was the subject, if you want to uh, find you, it? Yeah, you, you might not like it. I was basically saying that people are overvaluing the importance of social media in their career development. Right. Yeah. And so it created such a bad, uh, such a backlash that they ended up getting someone from Monster.com. To, <laughs> right, sure. Right. Also, but, but, also uh, but no, even if I object to it, my career by definition fits out, uh, outside the bounds of that. Exactly. That, I mean, I right, don't right. apply. I, I was talking more to young I, people. Yeah, I don't, I was, I don't, I don't apply to that. Skills. Obviously, yeah. like if, if, I mean, although I, I did say this on, on Seth Meyers' show, I said the, 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 the network wants me on their live tweeting the show, and I've asked them for data, and they can't give me any data. Well, yeah. I've, I've, I love the network. They're the most support, that truly, like the most supportive people in the world. Um, and I'm happy to do it if there's a ch- And I like doing it, and I like interacting with the audience, and there's an anecdotal part of it. But I don't actually see data that sh- has yet shown me the way that that causes people to do it. On the other hand, for, for someone who does what I do, the brand aspect of it is undeniable. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's not a right. deniable thing, the benefits of it. But you weren't talking to me. I wasn't talking to you, yeah. <laughs> if you're a showrunner, I think right. you should I use saying, you weren't. <laughs> yeah. No, you weren't talking to me. Yeah, yeah. In my business, you would probably say, well, that's useful. Do that. Of course that's useful. Don't yeah. do other yeah. stuff. But in order to get to there where it's useful for the brand of a show to tweet, you actually have to learn to write first, which means maybe spend some more time. Uh, yeah, put your head yeah, you down You have to work with vigor yeah. every day. You got to work with vigor, find that work. Yeah. Doing that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, but so, I don't know. I, I get some backlash on a ton. I don't mind that much. I mean... Uh, I don't know. Have you I, found I, that your life's changed? Yeah, it's 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 being forced to change. So so the thing that the the issue that's being forced is that I can't just do these two things completely separately. Right. I can no longer just be right. I'm a computer scientist that publishes these papers, and then I also over here am a writer that writes about these type of things. And and so so with the last book, with this book, with the new book I'm writing now, they're all consciously at this intersection of tech and culture. And the way I see it is, okay, that makes sense. 
I'm a technologist, I'm a computer scientist that also writes about the impact of this tech on society and culture. These aren't two separate things. I don't want to treat it like I have this job and then I have this side job. I want that. That should be my job. I should be doing both of these things. I should be writing academic papers and books. And so that clash has become inevitable. And so, I mean, we'll see what that means, but sort of, uh, I guess my scope in academia, at least uh, has to uh, broaden. It's going to broaden. Yeah, and officially so. I think that I thought I could kind of get away with that. What's deep work got big and what's I've been on the road with the, the publicity push behind behind this book. It's impossible now. Well, I'm eager to see where you take it next. Um, listen, folks, you can't find Cal anywhere, so don't try. <laughs> yeah. Just hopefully see that he's appearing somewhere and go or enroll at Georgetown and go to his office hours. He's uh, very willing to uh, see students during his office hours. Me, though, I'm all over social media. Uh, you can find me at Brian Hobbleman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say. And um, go read Cal's books. I'll tell you, they, uh, as you can see, they really do... Um, they really do uh, lead to critical thought in a way that I, I think is um, very useful. And um, he, he raises he raises issues that um, really ought to be considered and ought to be considered thoroughly as you make your own decisions about how, where, and when you want to engage on social media. Cal Newport, thanks for doing this. That's my pleasure. Thank you.